Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, some say the term fascism was born when Europeans started treating each other the way they'd been treating the colonized people of the world for centuries. We'll discuss the subject with Omali Yeshitela of the Black is Back Coalition. And Ajamu Baraka of the Black Alliance for Peace warns that you can't effectively fight police repression at home while condoning the U.S. acting like the policemen of the planet. But first, a new newspaper has hit the streets in Philadelphia, dedicated to the liberation of the nation's best-known political prisoner, Mumia Abu-Jamal. Pam Africa is coordinator of International Concerned Family and Friends of Mumia Abu-Jamal. She wants folks to sign a petition in the newspaper demanding that Philadelphia's district attorney stop standing in the way of Abu Jamal's freedom. We do have the first edition of the Jamal Journal. In the 90s, Mia and Momia did his newspaper, the Jamal Journal, was full of information. This very first newspaper that we're putting out is geared to what is happening to Momia now, all the evidence. And I just got a call from Momia and his wife. One thing Momia doesn't do, he never complains about his sickness. We always usually find that out for someone else. But he called me to let me know that he believes that he had COVID. And he had went to the doctors up there, and they was telling him, no, he don't. And all he said, his breathing is bad. And all he said, it feels like an elephant or something sitting on his lungs. So, you know, I'm asking people really to step up the work on Mumia. The district attorney here in Philadelphia stated that Mumia is guilty. There's absolutely no evidence to show any judicial or prosecutorial misconduct in Mumia's case, which is a blatant lie. Attorney in Philadelphia, Michael Court, has went on record and stated very clearly that, you know, in his investigations, Mumia is not only innocent, he's factually innocent. But what we have here is a conspiracy to commit cold-blooded, premeditated murder, and they want us to sit down, shut up, and act like these facts isn't happening. So D.A. Krasner, who said there is no evidence of Mumia not having a fair trial, in our journal, you'll see that their key witness, Mr. Schobert, and who was a cab driver, who said that he was on the scene, he seen what happened. He said that Mumia shot police officer Faulkner. He said several times, and he kept missing, missing shooting at first. But a photographer by the name of Polakoff was on the scene that night before a lot of the police officers got there. And he took pictures. Lynn Washington and another journalist, Lindorf, got the pictures from Polakoff, and the pictures show clearly there was no divots in the ground at all showing the lie that the DA is repeating today was nothing but a lie. The DA had evidence that they beat Mumia. And our lady who was looking out her window, she said she saw when they rammed his head into a pole, busting it wide open. He was stumped. He was kicked with those steel-toed boots, kicked on his side, and he was also shot. So when they brought him into the hospital, of course he couldn't stand up and he couldn't walk. And they didn't just lay him on the emergency room floor. They dropped him down on the floor where people come in on those treads and 
two doctors said that Mooney could not speak above a whisper. He had to get right down to him to hear what it was that he was saying. The police said that Mooney was shouting and screaming, yes, I shot the mother and I hope he dies. The best one. They claim that they have all the evidence. They turned in some evidence. A couple of years ago, they found six boxes that had evidence that hadn't been seen. So now they're saying they have all the evidence. But I remembered on the night of December 9th, which was in the winter, Mumi and his wife had these one-piece snowsuits, and that's what he was wearing that night. So they said that Mumi was shot at Faulkner several times before the fatal blow. And then they said that they forgot to take the paraffin test, showing that he had actually shot a gun. But when you shoot a gun, it's not only on your hands, but it's on your clothing. Mumia's clothing has disappeared. So I'm talking about judicial, prosecutorial, and police misconduct. I'm talking about police abuse of a witness, of a person that they had locked up. Right now, Mumia needs our help. He needs us to rise up. And uh, the Jamal Journal is online, Black Agenda. Look at that information. You know, it's very pertinent. They damn near killed Mumia three times during the time that he had hepatitis C and they was treating him for something else. And he darn near died. But it was the power of the people who brought him back. And we need that same power right now to put pressure on the Department of Corrections and also on D.A. Krasner, who lied and said there was no evidence. D.A. Krasner, he's supposed to be this liberal D.A., and a black judge by the name of Tucker had granted Mumia a right to have an appeal. Krasner stepped in, and as DA, he stopped that. And what happened, the Rebel Loitering Conference, some students from Howard, some students from Morgan, and some other students got together. They looked, and they, you know, they, they knew, because they'd been following the case, that Mumia was innocent and didn't have a fair trial. And when you get a black judge, and it's the only judge that stood up to the FOP, the only judge that stood up to the Supreme Court and Municipal Court, and all these courts that kept turning thumbs down on Mumia, he was the only one that had the backbone to stand up and say, based on the evidence that he saw, and uh, Mumia deserved a post-conviction hearing. And at that point, Krasner turns it down. The folks from the Loring Conference, which is a conference that invites people from Canada, from all over, these are all top-notch lawyers. It's a very prestigious thing. They had invited Krasner to be the keynote speaker. When these students saw that, they got together with Johanna Fernandez, who is a teacher at Baruch, and she did a film, a documentary film on Mumia. They got with her got all the evidence and took it to the head of the Loring Conference, and they disinvited Krasner and instead had Mumia as the keynote speaker. And this went over everywhere. Krasner then backed up off that position of the appeal. And then he got a lot of pressure put on him, and he just backed up off of it. And they started this thing called the King's Bench ruling, which stopped the case for six months. And when the six months was over, that's when Krasner filed his papers. And he said there was no evidence to point to the fact that Mumia didn't have a fair trial, that Mumia was guilty in his findings. And it's just a blatant, cold-blooded lie. Now, when Brother Kaepernick came forth and he investigated 
everything that there was. He looked at both sides of the evidence. It took him a couple months to come out and make his statements, urging people to support Mumia. This brother, he didn't take a knee. He took a stand, a firm stand, you know, with the evidence, what was happening with that case. They have not been able to kill Mumia when the years that Mumia sat on death row, and all they was determined, was telling everyone that they was going to kill Mumia. And here it is that we get to the point where after he got off of death row, finally got a judge that will be fair and look at things and push for him to have that trial, which he would have came home. Judicial and prosecutorial misconduct is one of the reasons that Mumia can come home. But D.A. Krasner is the blocker right there. And his lawyers, they got to file them papers for Mumia for judicial and prosecutorial misconduct. I'm not holding back on anybody, you know, right now. It is urgent that the lawyers do what they're supposed to do and the district attorney do what he's supposed to do. People say that a district attorney job is to find people guilty. Yeah, when it's guilt to be found, but when you dive into a case and you find innocence, it is your duty to do what is right. And they don't have the right to do wrong. But because this DA came in with this reputation as being a liberal and even a radical, you guys have been under some pressure from some folks in Philadelphia to cut DA Krasner some slack. Yes, indeed, because he had done some good things. But like right now, just like when they had their first black DA, and he ran on a thing of stating that Mumia was guilty and he was going to see to it that Mumia get executed or lethal injection. That's what he campaigned on. And a lot of the people who had been rallying around Mumia for years, when it came to that, what they did, they supported the DA you know, because he was their first DA. And I'm telling you, this word first and first black this and first black that, the first black mayor of Philadelphia played the part, the biggest part, because he was the mayor and dropping the bomb, killing 11 black men, women and children in a black neighborhood. Then you get your first white liberal, so-called liberal DA, and he comes around and he puts in legal following legal papers stating that Mumi is guilty, which is a cold-blooded lie. So we had people here in Philadelphia, I was approached about the situation because we're putting out the information on crash and they're pointing out if we do that, Peruto probably might be the next DA. He's a wicked son of a gun. And the other person that's running is the same, but I don't see no difference. They was telling me that you got to choose between the lesser of three evils. Evil is evil and it got to be wiped out. How dare people come up and say that because he did these few good things, you know, and I'm saying, he, you know, just like Biden is showing up to people right now, people is waving the flags on Biden, what a good person he is, all the things is coming out. But people, we have got to raise our voices and raise them loud. Like when they killed Malcolm, you know, there's movies now and all these years later to show, you know, what happened or that's what they say. But, you know, Malcolm is gone. 
we got the evidence right here. You know, when they killed Martin Luther King, we didn't know. We, you know, we felt as though he probably was going to get knocked, but we didn't know when and how. Mumi is right here, a black freedom fighter, a black revolutionary, a black man who could have just turned his back and been the next 60 minute man. And, you, know, you know, big on, you know, all those different things. But no, he chose to stand and fight for our people to expose the injustices in here. We cannot let this brother down. So with the Jamal Journal and the information that's on the Black Agenda Report, get that information, share that information. It is factual. Can nobody get around a thing that's on there? And get people to call the DA's office. People ask me, you know, what should they do? Spread the word, get in the streets and organize, let people know what is going on. Put pressure on Philadelphia. I'm going to the Power Association. Now, that's a group of black clergymen who have got together and they say that they're front line. And uh, well, I'm gonna make sure that they front line because when I step to them, I'm stepping with the paper, I'm stepping with the evidence and I'm demanding that they turn around and stand up and do what Kaepernick did. Stand up and do what you doing and are spreading the information and let people know we will not allow this government or any other government get away with what it is that they're trying to do. And the least that people can do is sign the petition uh, that you outline in the newspaper. And of course, to call Krasner's office. Right, right. Thank you. That was Pam Africa of International Concerned Family and Friends of Mumia Abu-Jamal. Mumia has been confined to the Pennsylvania prison system for the past 39 years. He filed this report for prison radio in memory of Cicely Tyson. From the Negro stage to the glittering lights of film, the long career of Cecily Tyson radiated through lifetimes. On December 19, 1924, Cecily Tyson was born in East Harlem. And despite her religious mother's opposition, she was drawn to the stage. Despite dozens of films, TV roles, and performances on the live stage, she refused to portray her people in a less than dignified light. For this, he doubtless lost and wasn't offered a number of roles. But like her colleagues, the late Ossie Davis and Ruby B, one would be hard-pressed to find a shameful performance. In 1972, Tyson received an Oscar nomination for Best Actress for her performance in the movie Sounder, opposite Paul Winfield, for her portrayal of a wife and mother of a Louisiana sharecropper family. Two years later, she would dazzle audiences in the CBS miniseries, the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, where she played a woman over 100 years old who lived to see the rise of the civil rights movement. Funny thing, though, the real Cecily Tyson lived to be 96 years old, and still she radiated vitality and beauty. For almost a decade, Tyson was married to the jazz master and genius Miles Davis. 
In her later years, she appeared in many movies made by Tyler Perry, in which she played the elder female wisdom figure. She inspired generations of actors and taught through her life work what it meant to demand respect. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. At noon on Saturday, March 6th, the Black is Back Coalition for Social Justice, Peace, and Reparations will hold a webinar on fascism, neoliberalism, and the way forward. The Democratic Party claims that it is a bastion of resistance to Republican fascism, but it is the Democrats that are most eager to put limits on free speech and access to the internet. Black is Back Coalition Chairman Omali Eshetela offers this analysis. I think the fundamental problem that we're looking at is that every time there is a crisis in this social system born of colonialism, and then you have the whole capitalist system together, and they're contending forces. And every time there's a crisis, I say contending forces, I'm talking right now about within uh, the ruling elite, uh, the ruling class itself, there's contention. And one of the things that brings about this crisis is the struggle of oppressed peoples to take back our resources upon which the whole system relies. So the question of fascism is something that we see emerging in every instance where one sector of the ruling class has now introduced measures that bear some resemblance to the colonial condition that African and other oppressed people live with all the time. So this issue of fascism is something that is conveniently introduced into the discussion that in many ways can, if we are not careful, take colonized people off of our target of struggling against colonialism and push us to uniting with one sector of the ruling class versus another around this issue called fascism, which is something that's relatively new in history. But colonialism is not new. Capitalism is not new. And what we're saying is that for colonized people, the question is not so much fascism, which is not to say we don't recognize the crisis of the system, but the question is colonialism and that uh, ultimately there is no fundamental difference for us if a fascist colonizer controls our lives or a so-called democratic colonizer controls our lives. And I'm not just saying this speculatively. I'm saying history has demonstrated that to us quite clearly, even as wars and struggles against fascism have been going on. Even as the French was engaged in the struggle against fascist Germany and what have you, it still held Algeria, it still held Vietnam, it still held more than 14 different countries in Africa under colonial domination, and it was brutal and grotesque. So the thing is that uh, colonized people, I think Emil Cabral was quite correct when he said that how the left in Portugal during the era of Portuguese direct domination of Portuguese Africa characterizes Portuguese Africa in places like Angola and Guinea, Bissau, etc., and Mozambique. He said that uh, while the left are saying that if we defeat fascism, he said that would automatically end colonialism. And his response was, we don't know if that's true or not, but if we defeat colonialism, then we know that fascism will collapse in Portugal. And he said that this is a major contribution that the colonized people 
are making toward the fight against what you characterize as fascism by defeating colonialism. So this is part of what is happening. And we hear people who are part of the coalition, Black is Black Coalition for Social Justice, Peace and Reparations, are talking about like leftists that they are confronting in trying to deal with all these critical issues that Africans are confronted uh, with throughout the United States and how there's a left characterization of the contradiction revolving around fascism that does not speak at all to what African people are confronted with. And there's no accident that uh, the police can kill black people on a regular basis throughout this country. And you can have a president that characterizes Mexicans and, and African people in the worst terms and build a complete massive organized presence from white people that say the same thing. And nobody said that what was happening to us is fascism. It's only when this contradiction that we live with every day rears uh, some aspects of its head with white people that the question of fascism then becomes something that emerges. And what that means is that the struggle against colonialism is minimized, and then the colonized people are to join with the other colonizers in fighting against uh, this expression of bourgeois oppression and expropriation. In that regard, Democratic President Joe Biden has not given up one inch substantively of ground regarding the police state that exists in the United States. And we can hear the <laughs> war machine grinding into deeper action with the ascendance of these Democrats to power. A war machine it's, that is mainly concerned with killing black and brown and yellow people around the world. Exactly. And the thing about this expression coming from Biden and from, uh, you know, that sector of the ruling class that's concentrated in what's called the Democratic Party, of course, which is among white people, it's a minority party. So this fascist thing that we're talking about uh, certainly is something that would be expensive, you know, like white people in general. This is a colonizer population. It's a settler colony. You and I have talked about this before in other circumstances, and it acts like a settler a colony. And so here we have Biden, and the thing that makes Biden different and interesting to some extent is because as the U.S. is the shaky hegemon, is the center right now of the whole capitalist world, the contradictions of capitalism are concentrated uh, inside the United States. And what we see happening in the United States that makes Biden different than this sector of the ruling class different is the fact that they do employ sectors of the colonized, those of us who are colonized, to participate in our own oppression, our own exploitation. For example, what Biden has done, he just did a military strike on Syria. And of course, the guy who is the head of the Department of War and now on the Biden administration is an African man. And then he's placed an uh, indigenous woman over the uh, Department of the Interior. And this is a department that has the responsibility of managing the relationship, the oppression, the exploitation of the indigenous people. So you have this indigenous woman who now functions carrying out U.S. policies against an indigenous people. In fact, the Department of Interior is the colonial entity that came into existence that functions for the purpose 
of managing, certainly, the indigenous population. So in many ways, you can say that it is colonialism writ large that we're looking at by what Biden is doing, but it's obscured for people who cannot see the colonial contradiction and who are trapped with analyses that's based mostly on personalized politics and Trump is a bad guy and Biden is a good guy, uh, something to that effect, and not understand that colonialism acts a certain way wherever it is in the world. And it acts like a colonial power when it deals with African people. And so much of the discussion that we're having today around this issue of fascism is an attempt to avoid the real discussion that has to be held, and that is around the colonial domination by America of Africans, of indigenous people in this country, and many peoples around the world. That's the question that most of the leftists refuse to deal with. That's the issue, in fact in many ways that made it necessary for us to create the Black is Black Coalition for Social Justice, Peace, and Reparation, because what they said about peace didn't mean what we mean about peace and what we need, because we recognize that this uh, assault on peace is something that comes as a consequence of uh, the imposition of a foreign alien domination over peoples, Africans, Mexicans, and other peoples around the world. So that's the uh, critical question that we're pushing now, and I think it's really important for us to be involved in this discussion right now. Yes, not all fascisms are overtly white supremacist. The Democratic Party is actually carrying out a kind of multiculturalist politics that's reflective of multinational corporations, the kind of corporations that the Democratic Party answers to. And multinational corporations have people from all over the world staffing their offices. But the aim of multinational corporations, like all corporations, is to dominate the world. And if the world can better be dominated with multicultural, multi-ethnic staffs of people, so be it. But that, too, is a fascism. Well, that's really important because I think that the multicultural expression, if you will, of this domination is something that's been referred to as neocolonialism by Nkrumah. And I think, and we've seen other anti-colonial movements and struggles refer to that. And what we talk about when we talk about neocolonialism is when the colonial power cannot express itself politically in its own face because the crisis has deepened to such an extent, because the colonized do become conscious of this foreign domination. And so this neocolonialism is you will have ceremonies. That's why some places called flag independence, because you have ceremonies where the colonizer will even sit down at the table with you and help you write a new constitution and help you design a new flag and help you design a ceremony that's supposed to represent independence. But even after that, they still own everything that they owned before. So the corporation that you're talking about, they still own every resource that you can find in Africa, around the world. And that's why they call it neocolonialism. Colonialism hasn't gone away. It just has another face to it. And what happens is that there have always been disagreements within sectors of the ruling class about how to control those of us who are colonized. Some of them are brutish and believe that you kill everybody, you oppress everybody that's necessary, control with that way. And some of them saying, no, when you move in that fashion, what you do is exacerbate the contradictions, you grow the resistance, you help mobilize even more people against you. So the objective then becomes to seduce a sector of the population that they give special privileges to and give them a stake in the colonial enterprise. In fact, there's a guy who was British who came up 
with this indirect rule as a mean of colonizers controlling the colonized from a distance. They call it indirect rule. And that's what the Biden administration is doing in a very interesting way with placing certain colonized people into these positions of obvious power to carry out oppression against other colonized people. In fact, that's what Obama was about in in a real big way. Yes, and black folks were overwhelmingly numerically seduced by Obama. But do you think Kamala is going to have the same kind of effect? (laughs) Well, I think that what I'm experiencing, comrade, and I don't know what how other people are seeing this, but from what I'm experiencing, not just as a person, but connected to a wide and broader movement, is that there's not this kind of excitement. You see certain petty bourgeois women from Greek sororities who are really happy to see this person there. But I'm not seeing that kind of excitement. I'm not seeing people say, rah, 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 you know, we've got Kamala. Not like that. Not like what we saw with Obama. I think that that era is over. And I think that one thing contributes to it, though it didn't contribute to the Obama thing, is the stench that is associated with the Biden regime. And some of this has become more and more obvious over a period of time. I think that what we saw that appeared to be really excitement and support for Biden and Kamala Harris was fear of Trump. And I think that African people did not experience having an alternative to Trump. And so I think that people were in a place of holding their noses and voting for Biden because of fear of Trump, of even a visceral hatred of Trump because of his overt expressions of opposition to black people and oppressed peoples around the world. And what are you expecting to come out of this webinar slash conference of the Black is Back Coalition? Well, one of the things that I think is really helpful about this conference is that we have ourselves, the people who are members of the steering committee, we have leadership from Union de Barrio, a Mexican national liberation movement. We have Penny Hess from the African People Solidarity Committee, Louisa Kinshasa, who is a Congolese-born African living in London. And then you have the secretary of the coalition, Elikia Ngoma, who is from Haiti. We have others who are U.S. rooted, who will be speaking to this question. But also what helps us is that we show the international character of this phenomenon that we are talking about of colonialism. And that helps for us. When I say us, I'm talking about Black people who are trying to win our freedom, the struggle to capture the narrative and the definition of our own struggle. That's a critical thing so that there doesn't have to be another kind of a cabral talking to the Portuguese, that there's a whole cacophony, if you will, a harmonious, if you will, expression that attacks this ideological imperialism that often comes from the white left or from the white people who love us. So I think that's going to be really important. And I think it's also going to be important because as you know, certainly in my experience is a certain kind of a weakness ideologically within the African liberation movement. A certain sometimes not very much science, or so science associated with this. And I think this contributes to bringing people a higher level of ideological development and contributes to an appreciation of science in our struggle. So, I mean, I think this is going to be really, really important, and it gives us the ability to define and defend our own revolution. And that's part of the whole anti-colonial self-determination struggle, that we speak for ourselves, we're our own liberators, and those people who really love us, who really support us, who really want us to have freedom, then we'll have to unite with that expression of what it means that comes from the colonized and not something that they invent and impose on us, because that's a form of 
colonialism itself. And tell us what folks need to do to be part of this webinar conference. People should go to blackisbackcoalition.org. Blackisbackcoalition.org. You can register, and you should register now. Right now, the registration is growing, and I think it's going to grow even more. And so come on to blackisbackcoalition.org. Join in this discussion. Join uh, in this event. I think it will do wonders in terms of moving our struggle overall forward at this critical time in history. That was Omali Yeshitela of the Black is Back Coalition, speaking from St. Petersburg, Florida. The U.S. Peace Council recently held a joint webinar with the Venezuelan section of the Committee for International Solidarity and Struggle for Peace. The event's lead speaker was Ajamu Baraka, national organizer of the Black Alliance for Peace. I say revolutionary greetings to everyone who was part of this uh, conversation, especially our friends and comrades uh, who are outside the borders of the settler colonial USA. My comments, I'm going to slightly alter them a little bit uh, because I think it's important for us to to, uh, talk about as the subject matter of this event, uh, to talk about the evolving and developing situation in the U.S. in terms of how it relates to the war that is being waged by this state in alliance with its European colonial partners against all of us, against all of us uh, who are uh, confined in this prison house of nations in the U.S., who are colonized, who are members of the working class in this country, and all of the uh, colonized and exploited uh, peoples and nations around the world. We can't have any illusions, my friends, about what we are up against. As all of the speakers have laid out, it's quite clear that we should not expect any alteration, any fundamental alteration in the policies of this administration, this Biden administration, understanding the nature of this administration. As Margaret said, I think, you know, many people in this country, you know, had a sigh of relief uh, at the uh, defeat of Donald Trump. And of course, uh, that can be seen as progressive. But for many people around the world, in particular people in the global south, uh, there was no real uh, sigh of relief understanding that both of these imperialist parties are connected to and committed to the same fundamental agenda. And what is that agenda? To attempt to try to maintain and expand U.S. global colonial capitalist hegemony. So there's no, there's no confusion by that. So basically all of the domestic conversation around the possibility of of some progressive change on the part of the neoliberal right-wing Democrats, you know, has had no traction in many quarters outside of the U.S. And we have to, we have to embrace that and understand that because what that means, my friends, is those of us in the U.S., we have to go beyond just the correct analysis. We have the analysis, but we have to begin to talk about what do we do at the center of empire to assist in this global struggle, 
How do we take advantage of the strategic opportunities we have here at the center of empire to advance the interests of the colonized and working class people in this country, but even more importantly, the colonized and working class people of the world, in particular the, of the so-called global south. And we have to raise that question in that way because for many of us, we understand that the changes that, that take place in this country, the ability of forces to galvanize themselves and to put pressure on uh, this state, uh, to that extent, we'll see uh, uh, a progressive change um, in the world. Let me put that another way. The struggles of peoples of colonized people around the world, they're really not going, going to be uh, contingent on us. Okay, they're moving. What we have to do is understand what our responsibilities are in this country. Okay, so this country, this prison house of nation, this this state uh, that is a settler colonial state, uh, what we have seen uh, in the last few weeks um, since the election of Donald Trump uh, should be instructive to all of us. Not just in terms of the kind of forces that have been unleashed and revealed uh, with the, uh, the more vicious right, uh, the more cartoonish um, uh, spectacles of, of right-wing uh, forces, uh, but we also have to be very clear about what we have seen with the response on the part of the state uh, to that, uh, that political movement uh, and the moves that have been made uh, to strengthen the national security state in order to uh, deal with any kind of internal political opposition that the state might find itself confronted with. Now, we have to say that because as we take on our responsibility in this country, to build an alternative movement, to be in solidarity with all that, all of the forces, all of the peoples, all of the movements are in opposition to US and European colonialism. We have to understand the context in which we are operating in, just like our friends and allies need to understand the context that they are operating in and the nature of this uh, particular administration. So the repressive apparatus we see being strengthened today is an apparatus that has one uh, main objective, to perpetuate itself, to maintain its power, to advance its interests. We understand that. Our friends and allies outside of this country need to understand also too, and I think they do, that that, those, that same agenda, that same set of interests is operative uh, outside of the borders of this country. We make the connection between the repressive apparatus in the U.S. and the repressive agenda, uh, the warmongering of the state globally. We make those connections so we can remind ourselves of our responsibilities, so we can be clear in terms of who our friends are and who our allies and potential allies might be. So this Biden administration is quite clear that its uh, mission uh, is, as they see it, uh, to uh, reassert uh, U.S. Uh, global leadership of the uh, pan-European colonial capitalist project. Biden is a, uh, uh, an Atlanticist. Uh, that's a fancy word for saying uh, he's a white supremacist. He is, he is committed, like uh, all of those forces, uh, black and white, 
liberal, neoliberal forces to the perpetuation of white power. When we talk about the colonial capitalist system, we are talking about basically structural, institutionalized white power. Make no mistake about that. So any kind of alterations of the relationship between the US and for example, Venezuela, one must understand that the objective is not to uh, make things better for the Bolivarian process in that country, but there's an angle for how they can advance their interests. We must be crystal clear about that. So my friends, this nation state that we are a part of, uh, the, the objective conditions that we are facing in this country uh, in many ways mirror uh, conditions we see in other parts of the world. And that is the basis of our solidarity, the material and political basis of our solidarity. You've heard many of the speakers talk about some of the material conditions that we are facing. Uh, and I'm not gonna go through all of those, those conditions, but we know that we have a serious economic contradictions as a part, as a, a result of the uh, collapse, uh, the veritable collapse of this economy. And for us who are part of the African uh, people, uh, the working class uh, of this country, uh, we never recovered from the uh, collapse of the economy in 2007 and 2008. And now we're facing a more dire situation than even then with this COVID situation that has uh, intensified uh, the internal contradictions and the problems we face uh, as a people and as a working class. So, you know, we understand why there's a legitimation crisis. We understand because we feel it every day, the material contradictions of this system. Uh, and we have no illusions about that. But what we also understand is this, our responsibility. And we raise this question of responsibility because, you know, we, we hear people talk about uh, this right wing and, and the challenge that is that the uh, authorities are facing with this right wing. And we see their responses. I just wanna remind our friends that, you know, for many of us, who have lived and lived in this colonial project, this question of, of fascism is almost academic because we understand, just like you understand in the colonized world, that it was colonial fascism that served as the basis for the, the erection of global racial capitalism, okay? Many of us say that this concern with fascism why is important. We also, we also understand this, that this word fascism that was systematized in the 1920s was basically, in a way, a, a word that captured what well, the kind of political conditions and practices when white people do certain things to other white people. That's when we talk and hear about this word fascism. So we've got to understand that what we're facing today in some ways aren't, isn't really that unique. There's some particular historical uh, uniqueness to it. But for those of us who are in the colonized world, uh, we cannot get a, as excited as some other folks who uh, will uh, convince themselves they are facing something unique uh, and something that requires a certain kind of mobilization uh, that uh, continues to see themselves uh, at the center of the opposition. So what our task is, uh, my friends, 
at this moment in history is to continue to build effective relations of solidarity, to understand uh, who our friends are, but even more importantly, who the enemy is. It is for us to continue to build those structures, understanding that we have the, the power to in fact transform ourselves and transform these conditions. We uh, say to the people of Venezuela, we say to the people around the world that those of us in the Black Alliance for Peace, uh, we are going to be uh, uh, as adamant in our opposition uh, to this current administration as we were uh, with the previous one. That we understand that until we're able to take power back from this global minority, that none of us will be free. So we say to everyone who can hear and see this program, that at this moment in history, on February 3rd, 2021, our collective task is to deepen our relationships, to build a new kind of movement. But we also say too, to all of our friends and our allies around the world, that we recognize that we have a unique responsibility at the center of empire, that we have to strengthen ourselves and to build a more effective movement. And we, have, we say that because we know that we have some uh, decent forces here, but even when we look at the anti-war and anti-imperialist community in this country, sometimes it seems like some of our friends are more concerned with doing everything else but building a more effective anti-war and anti-imperialist opposition. We have to address that. So our task is to build a movement. Our task is to strengthen our ties. Our task is to understand the objective and subjective conditions we are facing today. And when we do that, uh, when we understand uh, those tasks, uh, we'll be the more uh, uh, advantageous place to build the kind of power we have to build to transform this world. So I thank you, my friends. I hope we have a chance to have a, a very vigorous conversation uh, to talk about what we need to do in more detail. Uh, but we say, uh, let's remember this process, peace process in Afghanistan. Uh, let's remember why it's important for us to demilitarize um, police forces in the US and why we have to shut down AFRICOM and shut down all of these global uh, command structures, close down these US bases and defeat the US imperialism. And the only way we do that is when we do it together. All power to the people particular question, but I think it's important that we, we, we remind ourselves that trying to come to grips with the realities of these various administrations, uh, we have to go beyond the, the, the personalities. It's important to know where some of these people might may stand, but we have to really ground ourselves in what social forces that they actually represent. Uh, Victoria Newland, uh, as part of the neocon uh, movement in the United States, uh, we saw, in my opinion, a ideological and political bridge that was established between the neocons and the traditional liberal uh, uh, interventionists 
under the Obama administration. So that now they've become almost indistinguishable. Uh, so these forces represent uh, uh, extreme right, dangerous elements. Um, and the very fact that uh, this Biden administration has found a place for uh, her and these forces like the Obama administration uh, is a, a indication of the character uh, of this administration. Not so much in terms of whether or not they good or bad or, or any of those kind of theological terms, but the interest that they represent, that these are for, uh, forces that are fully committed to a full spectrum dominance, uh, who are under the illusion that they can reestablish um, uh, U.S. global hegemony, uh, who are openly uh, discussing the possibility of nuclear first strikes against the Chinese and even the Russians, who are who are fully in, in, intending to uh, to deploy intermediate uh, range missiles in the Indo-Pacific uh, command area. You know, we've got to keep the eye on who these people uh, really represent the social forces so that at some point we can stop being uh, so easily manipulated. The fact of the matter is we have we have opportunities to move politics in a different direction. But because of the weakness of our organizations uh, and the uh, the weaknesses of some of our cadre, we're not in a position to take advantage of the fact that, for example, majorities of the people in the in the U.S. are opposed to the to military spending at this level. But because you know we live in a uh, we don't have a democracy, uh, that uh, those views are not taken into account. So we have to. It goes back again and again. It might sound like a cliche, but it's it's really fundamental. We've got to build more effective alternative organizations. We've got to recognize that we are in a, we are in fact in the battle of ideals, that the, the terrain of consciousness is where we have to operate. We've got to understand that, that basically, you know, we have an opportunity, especially as more and more people are being radicalized by their everyday life, their everyday experiencing experiences. They're seeing that their lives mean nothing when they are forced to go to work uh, with no uh, PPE. You know, when, you know, they, they, they read about or hear about that uh, their European counterparts uh, during the pandemic uh, are able to get 70 or 80 percent of their salaries while they can stay so they can stay home. But in the U.S., we are forced to go to work and we get a lousy two thousand dollars. And then another uh, promise for 2000 that got re reduced to 1400. You know, and we're supposed to be happy about that. We have all kinds of opportunities, but you know, we've got to understand the political challenges. You know, we say from, from our point of view, as African revolutionaries, we want and seek solidarity with, with everyone. And we uh, are encouraged and, and heartened by uh, people are in solidarity with us. But in my tradition, we've always had to remind uh, our white allies also that they had a responsibility and have a responsibility to organize also some of these crazy white folks, 
to organize this, this white working class that's confused and that no one was talking to them for decades except for the radical right, okay? There are all kinds of opportunities there if you have people who have the cultural and political competency to basically engage those forces. And we have to sooner or later, because if you follow, if you follow you know, the political discourse among those elements, if you just would have followed some of those Trump rallies and watched closely what they were talking about in places like Fox News, you will understand the kinds of, of political connections they are making. They, they are, there's some real fascistic elements there in, in that political discourse, okay? Now they were disorganized up till now, and they're gonna get organized. But the, the messages were, were some, some compelling messages against the political and economic elites, you know? And there's no counter to that besides the, the uh, insufferable uh, elitist BS you will see at uh, C, uh, CNN and MSNBC. They can't relate to those, those freaks. They can't speak the language of the people. So we've got to have better org organizers who can speak to those sectors. And we got to do this uh, pretty quickly, folks, because the real possibility now of a really galvanized ultra-right movement, I think is more, is more, more likely than it was a few years ago. Now, you know, I'm concerned, and many of you all have seen some of our, our statements, I'm concerned about both elements of the right, this ultra uh, disorganized right and the neoliberal uh, fascistic right that is still in power, that's still in the state, that is in uh, alignment with other elements of the state, the corporate media, big tech, the military industrial complex, the intelligence agencies. I'm concerned about that form of unique US fascism also. So we have a, a tremendous uh, task ahead of us. Very, very complicated situation we're facing in this country. Yeah, we have to resist uh, the police state and we have to connect that to the uh, military uh, war posturing of the US globally also. You know, one of the initiatives that Joe Biden talked about to prove his his commitment to racial justice uh, last week was he is going to uh, reverse the reversal made by Donald Trump to the Department of Defense 1033 program. That program is a program primarily responsible for uh, militarizing police forces across the country for the last few decades. Uh, a program that, that expanded um, under every president, but its most dramatic expansion was under the Obama administration. Now, uh, Obama uh, made some cosmetic changes to the program because after people were uh, uh, freaked out by the images of, of tanks and all kinds of military equipment uh, in response to the uh, rebellion in Ferguson, uh, there was uh, pressure building to do something about this program because people were saying, what is this? Is this the US? Oh yes, it is the US, okay. so. They made some cosmetic changes um, that prevented some uh, limited amount of equipment, uh, tanks with tracks, for example. Trump came in, reversed that, uh, that agreement, uh, that, that change. Biden says he's going to reverse the Trump reversal. 
uh, and we're supposed to then, you know, applaud him for being progressive. No, we say shut down the whole program, shut down 1033. And we're asking people to go to our site to sign that petition, but also to educate people on that program. The Israeli training of police forces by the, the training of police forces by the Israeli Defense Force, um, the the existence of fusion centers, uh, the you know the repressive apparatus in this country that's here to have its full weight being directed at any political opposition in this country. So yes, we've got to raise up this issue of uh, police uh, uh, militarization. Uh, but we have to link it always to the overall uh, nature of this state. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.